Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. On this week's episode, I'm excited to welcome someone who has been part of the fabric of Dead for Filth since the beginning. One of the show's original producers, as well as the individual who has helped me revive the podcast during this current renegade radio reiteration, she's someone for whom my appreciation could never be fully encapsulated by mere words. The filmmaker behind such radical shorts as Beautiful and Sweet Children, she's an accomplished director, producer, writer, cinematographer, and more, whose ever-expanding resume consistently proves she's a renaissance woman of punk rock cinema. Beyond film, she's an accomplished graphic artist, and through her design imprint, Sister Hyde, has become a known and celebrated quantity in the world of film for creating iconic imagery for the likes of the Criterion Collection, Kino Lorber, Altered Innocence, 88 Films, and more. Please welcome to the show, artist extraordinaire, filmmaker, and dear friend, Drew Phillips. Thank you so much for having me. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited to have you. Uh, and it's funny because I think that people who are longtime listeners of the show, they know that, you know, you have often been behind the scenes and you've popped up in some of the specials. They're probably wondering why it took so long to get you here. And uh, a little Dead for Filth trivia that I'm uh, going to share during this time of quarantine is Drew and I actually did record an episode sometime around uh, episode 75. And due to uh, just some complications at the time, we were unable to air it. Uh, so it is sort of a mythic lost episode in the history of Dead for Filth. But now we're back and we're, we're, uh, we're doing it again. Yeah, nothing like killing a myth. Yeah, I love that, uh, I love that you, you got to be the last episode. It's like the Lost Beatles album or like the last episode of a TV show that just couldn't air for some reason. And it's because everyone knows it's really, really bad, but they want to believe that it's really, really good. Exactly. Because it was really, really good. It was just like, you know, like... It was like really, the... really good. Yeah. Yeah. We'll just tell everyone it was so good we couldn't air it. That's the reason. <laughs> well, so why don't we just kick things off the same way I start every show with the same first question I ask every guest? And it is simply this. Why horror? And you can interpret that however you want. Uh, why does horror appeal to you? Why do you think audiences are drawn to it? But why horror? I love horror so much because horror is a gateway. Horror is one of the only genres in the world that is just the most easily permeable seal into film, into literature, into self-expression. And you're able to sneak so much stuff in under the guise of a simple horror movie or short story or film or what have you. So many great, great, great horror films double as political or social allegories and you're able to do so much with so little. From a filmmaking standpoint, you can create, you know, an indie feature on $7, some shoestring and bubblegum, make it a horror film with no actors and release it and people will want to see it because it's such a ravenously devoured genre with such strong fans and stretched just adoring public and interest. And as a child, I was deeply terrified of anything even remotely spooky or creepy, but I was always drawn back to it. I was always, you know, reading as like, you know, a small kid Dracula from a very, very young age, and it repulsed me to no end, but I couldn't put it down, and I would reread it every year, and my parents would freak out because I would have nightmares, and I, like, would refuse to watch horror movies, but I kept reading them, and I kept watching them to the point that by the time I was in college, it was just, 
it was just absolutely who I was. It was absolutely just like, oh yeah, you know, it's just something else. And I, I looked at, I looked at, you know, John Carpenter and David Cronenberg the same way I looked at Fellini and Truffaut. It's just like, yeah, those amazing movie makers who made great political and social films with a lot of vomit and guts. <laughs> now, uh, you had mentioned watching and reading these things that scared you. And I think a through line that happens uh, with a lot of different artists is a lot of people who are now in horror were sort of initially terrified or, or sort of re repulsed or repelled from it, but kept finding themselves coming back. Uh, and, and what do you think that is? Why, why is it like if we have this, this fear of something that, you know, hits us in our core, why do we gravitate back to it? It kind of felt like a challenge to me, especially at a young age. There was very, like, I grew up with an older brother and a very masculine, adventurous father. So everything was about doing something to be as hyper-masculine or as uh, attuned with the two of them as possible. So if they were going scuba diving, I'm going to get my certification and I have to go scuba diving. If they're going to go race dirt bikes, I'm getting a dirt bike and I've got to go with them. If my brother's going to be playing football or hockey, I've got to do that as well. So it was very much the kind of thing that if I wasn't on the same level as them, then I had the feeling that I didn't have value within that small grouping. Even though I felt myself relating to my mom more when he had to read books and sit in the corner with Lego sets. Um, <laughs> so I felt, you know, as a kid watching something like Raiders of the Lost Ark and being just like having to run out of the room when all their faces melt off or even freaking out at the dead body at the beginning... Um, I felt, okay, I need to fix this. I need to change this. I need to challenge myself. And I very quickly found the kind of horror that I could get into. The kind of horror that was interesting and compelling to me. So I very quickly found stuff that I could test myself with. I would watch 28 Days Later on cable and change the channel whenever it was too much but i would always go myself into changing it back um i read dracula again and again and again and again because i just fell in love with it and i mean i was even afraid of young frankenstein the first time i saw it uh, <laughs> i was deeply terrified when they showed that uh skeleton at the beginning just i freaked out but i that, at least, and all the stuff they ended up finding, like Dracula and, like, Young Frankenstein and these kind of lighter but still murkier territories, the fear was always met with reward. And it never ended up being any kind of connection to my father or brother, which benefited me. But it was, it ended up finding my own connection. It helped me kind of find my own interests. So were, were anyone else, were your parents or was anyone else in your family into horror or was that just something that you, you dug into? I'm the only one who really got into it. My mom loves Alfred Hitchcock and she loves Young Frankenstein and she loves Murder by Death and Clue and Agatha Christie movies and she likes true crime and murder and she loves it if you can mix it with comedy but she's never been the kind of person to 
seek out a horror movie, though she did just watch the new Invisible Man from home and was raving about it. <laughs> I'm happy, happy to say. <laughs> but and we've always we always watched, you know, Universal monster movies around the Halloween together in Abbott and Costello, Meet the Mummy and those were always big, but it was never no one ever sat me down and showed me a Halloween. No one ever said it's important that you see the fog and this is why. No one ever encouraged me to find cat people, you know? It was right. very much I kind of found these on my own. My dad liked Silence of the Lambs and would tell me about that. And my mom loved Coppola's Dracula and told me about that after I read the book. <laughs> I I read Stoker's novel when I was uh, fourth grade, third grade. I was very, very, very young. And I loved it. And my mom was like, you know, there's this really good movie with Keanu Reeves and Winona Ryder. <laughs> And I love it a lot, and there's no way in hell you're going to see it because you're a child, and that movie's incredibly sexual. Um, and so I stole it from the library on VHS, um, probably a year or two later, and I didn't understand it, but I loved it because it's beautiful. Well, and it's interesting that your mom clued into the sexuality of Coppola's uh, version of Bram Stoker's Dracula. I mean, not clued into it, it's obviously very much front and center in that film, but... Stoker's novel, there is a sexuality and a sensuality present as well. And I wanted to ask you about that because of all the 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 great gothic novels or horror novels to perpetually revisit as a kid, uh, that Dracula was yours. And in uh, knowing now like your kind of adult fascination with uh, lesbian vampire films, uh, I'm I'm wondering if you recognized in some way, that that kind of sexual undertone from the beginning, or that was something that you you realized later about about our favorite vampire. I'm sure I picked up on it at that age. I am hard pressed to say if I knew sexual impulses at that age, though. But I, it was the scenes where Dracula was seducing these women that was the most compelling to me at that age. Because I have always had a very, very, very deep-held fear of someone breaking into your house, someone being in your house, or something horrible happening as a result of that. And yet Dracula is about a man who charms his way into your house and seduces his way into your house to do something terrible, or, on the flip side, to do something intensely erotic and intensely sexual. <laughs> uh, and that's either very, very good or very, very bad, depending on how you want to read those. Um... And that was always my deepest, worst possible fear. And this presented that fear in a way that was so incredibly exciting and charming and fascinating that I couldn't help but want it to happen to me. At that age, I wanted to both be the vampire and I wanted to be the one seduced by the vampire. And see, I'm, I'm really fascinated by this because, you know, obviously over the course of Dead for Filth, we've heard from a lot of uh, creators who sort of speak to the connection of otherness that draws them to certain monsters or certain final girls or whatever. But you're tapping into you're tapping both into something that runs parallel to that and is is in a way almost a different conversation as well is sort of the revelations about our our own sexual identities that these kind of fantastical elements play 
uh, in our lives. And I, I think that it's really interesting to think that when you're sort of developing who you want to be and who you are and coming into your own to look at a character like Dracula to to be on both sides of it, to, to want to be the seducer and seducee. And, and what what's that what's that mean? Mm hmm. It's I don't know to boil it down to a very simple thing. It's high switch energy. However, I I don't know. I was de I as a kid at a certain age. I also hunted out vampire movies like as much as I could from suburban Indiana with like a basic cable package. <laughs> and you know, I watched Dracula two thousand and Dracula Ascension and Embrace of the Vampire and some really not the best, very erotic, like, 90s and early 2000s vampire movies. And if they didn't have a character being turned into a vampire, for better or worse, in them, I would be very, very disappointed. That's all I wanted to see in vampire media, is I wanted to see, you know, I wanted to see Lucy Westero turned by Dracula and then become the blue fur lady. I wanted to see all the different brides throughout Dracula 2000 <laughs> slowly turned by Dracula because the the seduction scenes were so compelling to me because, you know, in retrospect, they're so intensely charged and erotic, but also because there's a transformation there and following the transformation, those people, depending on the depiction of vampires in the movie, sometimes they're more zombie-esque and I don't like those movies, but... Um, especially if you look at Dracula 2000, which I watched entirely too much at that age, and if you look at Stoker's original novel, they enjoy being vampires. A lot. They love it. So much so that they want other people to join them. Maybe they also want to kill them and eat them, but also they, they thoroughly enjoy their existence to a large degree. And that's something that I, as a, you know, closeted gender-questioning 12-year-old in central Indiana could only fantasize about. Well, and I think you just spoke to this in a major way, but uh, it makes me think of a conversation that we have had off and on, and something that I even remember you tweeted once, that you said uh, in your summation that all vampires are queer. And oh, uh, yes. could you speak to that a little bit? Well, the fact that a vampire uses sexual and amorous tactics to their advantage constantly. A vampire is designed to seduce. Vampires aren't successful if they're not attractive or erotic. Like I mentioned earlier, the way that they work in the Stoker novel is that they're breaking into your home to kill you, or turn you, and right. they don't do so with violence or malice, they do so through your own will. They can't get in, you have to let them in. So they have to seduce you to that point, and the only way for them to do that is to be incredibly charismatic and romantic and amorous and charming. And so vampires inherently have to be incredibly sexual creatures to exist, A. And B, there's no it would have it would be the vampire equivalent of being a vegetarian to be heterosexual. It would be <laughs> limiting. You would be saying it's, it, it just doesn't make sense. And every every vampire that I've seen and the ones that I've most related with, especially on top of that, but honestly as a whole, have always exuded 
incredibly queer vibes. They're so confident in who they are. They are so charming in nature that they attract everyone around them. Even in an incredibly queer, but specifically lesbian film like Daughters of Darkness, the male protagonist is still incredibly interested in these women. He's as equally fascinated by them. It's it's the kind of thing um, that a lot of non-binary friends of mine like to joke about, that they're non-binary, so no matter what gender you are, if you're attracted to them, that makes you a little gay. <laughs> well, I also think there was... You, you tapped on this very early into the conversation, and it's something that I keep thinking about, is the idea that once they become vampires, once the transformation happens, once the turning occurs... Uh, it's sort of they they get to sort of embrace and celebrate this sexuality that their the trappings of their human life, which could be read as the trappings of the societies of, of, of human society, do not let them enjoy that now that they are vampires, they are free to be th- their truest sexual self. And I think mm-hmm. that's a really cool concept. Yeah, a lot of people have read since honestly for decades now have read Lucy Westerow in Stoker's Dracula as being a very feminist uh, transformation of her character. Granted, there's also critiques of that novel of being incredibly misogynistic and xenophobic, which, you know, that's also there. Sure. However, the move of Lucy being tied exclusively to her value being found in men and what men she's dating and what men she's with and how that fits into her role in society. She's a wealthy woman. She has three suitors, but that's her only value to the society around her. As soon as she is transformed into a vampire, she is entirely her own creature and her entire mode of existence changes. And for the better, she's her own person and she's able to act out her own sexual impulses. And on top of that, she spends, as the blue for lady, she spends her vampiric existence turning small children out of a desire for children to not face the suffering of the world that she has. Oh, how interesting. Not out of any weird sexual desire towards children, thank God, because that would have been a very different read. Um, Sure. Because she's not killing these children to just drain them and eat them. She's turning all of these children um so they don't have to deal with human life mm-hmm. huh. there's some iterations of dracula that include her with a like gaggle of vampiric children and it's uh, a sight to behold needless to say well speaking of uh of spooky kids and uh this conversation about vampirism and and breaking the shackles of society's demands to be your sexy vampiric self it all began with talking about your childhood and your investment in the world of horror so i want to go back to your origins a little bit because you know when i was uh doing your introduction i talked about sort of the various identities that you have in the world of uh horror and the world of media um what what did come first? Your interest in filmmaking or your interest in art? Or were they both kind of there and, and, and uh, budding concurrently? And could you just speak a little bit about the beginnings of you, you as an artist? Yeah, I feel like they absolutely happened at the same time. Well, my interest in filmmaking certainly came first. Because for years I had 
been an awful illustrator and was told by most art teachers that I was not up to snuff and not up to par and that whatever I did with a pencil or pen was not, uh, I was going to need a lot more work if I ever wanted to do that. So I was very, very quickly discouraged. Going into high school, I found myself writing a lot and wanting to write films as like a form of escapism. And I dove headfirst into cinema. I had a very, very, very wealthy public library that I was able to check out any movie I wanted. They had, you know, everything from Bergman and Fellini to John Waters and uh, John Carpenter. And I had a lot at my disposal there. And I would flip through New York Times reviews from, like, as far back as the 30s and 60s to try to find new films to watch. And as I was enriching myself with that and trying to become a better filmmaker, at the same time, I was developing an interest in film key art and home video art, and I was becoming very, 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 very attracted to um, the images related to films and associated with films. I began collecting classic movie posters and vintage one-sheets, and when I kind of started diving into my interest in the Criterion Collection, uh, their artwork, of course, is world-renowned at this point, and it was incredibly inspiring to see such new takes and adventurous takes given to such important and classic and affecting films for me. And at that point, I was also playing bass in a bad punk band. <laughs> and do, and, you know, we needed flyers, we needed album covers, and so I started doing that at the same time that I started making my first short films, and they all kind of intersected with one another. The I would watch movies to inspire movies, which inspired songs, which inspired a need to make art, and they all kind of got a little incestuous at a point. And then I went to college for film. I went to film school uh, in Chicago, and I focused in experimental directing, which is pointless. Um, I made some, you know, fun stuff, and I, you know, dove headfirst into Maya Darren and the more uh, obscure and amazing surrealist and experimental filmmakers at the time, um, and fell in love with video art. But as I was doing it, I found that the work that I was putting out in college as as a filmmaker was getting very little attention. However, the things that people professors and students in my school were noting on was that they loved my opening title sequences. And I would be asked by other students to do titles for them and stuff. And I was like, oh, maybe I should just do that. Maybe I should just kind of focus more into design-related things and possibly art and key art-related things. And it kind of evolved from there and that interest. Well, you you mentioned uh, experimental film and how that was a focus of yours. And obviously, I am a huge fan of surrealism and abstract cinema. But why why that for you? Why was that like the thing that you initially thought, this is these are the films I'm going to make? Because no one would work on my sets. No. Um, it was mostly because I my interest in film coming out of high school and going into college were mostly rooted in filmmakers like Louis Benoit, Cronenberg's early films, 
to a certain extent, um, Rainer Werner Fassbinder, and the very, very experimental late works of Jean-Luc Godard. And so I was kind of headlong into some rather experimental filmmaking um, in and of itself. I I wanted to be the Jean Vigo and Jean Cocteau of central Indiana, and that wasn't going to happen, which I very quickly realized. But I I found such an interesting inroad into this because I felt that I didn't need to justify myself. I didn't need to hide things that I was trying to say. I didn't need to have insane budgets and I didn't need to aim to impress people. I didn't need to... I still needed to obviously try very, very hard and I needed to put thought into what I was doing, but I didn't have to step outside of my internalized mental process behind these pieces and I was able to let them be kind of self-contained and whole thoughts. And it let me play around with the form in a way that I wouldn't have. And I feel like there's an element of experimental filmmaking that goes into a number of horror films and kind of the majority of horror on a whole that, again, like I said at the beginning, because it's so ubiquitous of a genre, it can have all of those trappings of experimental cinema and still be deemed acceptable. Like, for instance, David Lynch's Eraserhead is basically an experimental film. But right. it's a, but it's also seen by and large as a horror film and as a cult film and a very strong and potent one at that. Well, and I'm and I'm glad you brought up this comparison because it was something that I was going to point out as well. I think that you and I both would agree that in the world of of film critique and film study and film historians and and and, and archivism and all of that. Uh, there is uh, a general disdain, by and large, for the horror genre and sort of the, these echelon, these imposed echelons of what is art and what is not. But when you start talking about experimental filmmakers, some of the names that you referenced, Maya Deren, Louis Buñuel, uh, early Cronenberg, these are all filmmakers who dabbled in the horrific and by, by many measures would be considered, uh, at, at, at least in some portions of their career, horror filmmakers, even if uh, the ivory tower of academia would would scoff at that. And so I I do think that they are very compatible with one another, if not one in the same, just one happens to uh, be a more deranged cousin than the other, you know? (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. So you were talking about how a lot of your work overlapped. Uh, and it was both out of passion and necessity that you started creating uh, things, whether it be artwork for your movie or, you know, flyer for your band and vice versa. But in terms of, of the art, because it's re- your, your work uh, in the world of art has really, really kind of hit a stride in the last few years. Did the current iteration of, of you, you as a graphic artist begin with the whole uh, Poster a Day project? Yes, it kind of did. I was working, after I moved to Los Angeles, I uh, was working as an in-house designer um, and I was finding, you know, web development and app development, you know, interesting as in, you know, social media campaigns, as interesting as they can be. But at the same time, as I mentioned, my main interests and passions lie in film and film history and film key art. And I was... 
at a point where I was comfortable in my ability that I was like, okay, I think I can do this. I think I can aim a little bit higher now. I think I can, you know, maybe put social media assets aside and aim for one sheets and quads and home video releases. So in the end of 2017, what would end up being 2018, I decided to do a poster a day project, which was inspired by a friend of mine named Scott Saslow, who's also an artist and is phenomenally talented, in which I would do one new fan-inspired movie poster for a film a day for a year. This was an insane feat, and I was stupid to take it on. However, the results were amazing. I had very little time because I was working a full-time job as a designer, so most were designed in my hour lunch break. Um, and then just posted same day or the next day. But what I was able to do is I was really, really, really able to experiment with the tools at the ready and also at what I was later to kind of like hone in on stylistically. And I was able to do it through movies that I loved and movies I was, I was familiar with and movies that I feel like don't get fan posters. Like... You're not going to see a lot of fan art for The Phantom of Liberty or Eight Hours Don't Make a Day. <laughs> um, granted, like, the pieces that I did for those aren't amazing, but I was able to play around in a way that I was able to put Val Luton movies next to Spielberg movies and kind of draw attention back to kind of some of these classic films that I love while also being able to play with my burgeoning art style. And so I did that across my Instagram for all of 2018, I did over 365 pieces because I did some variants and uh, two-a-days, which were genuinely insane. <laughs> um, and I was able to get commission jobs from there. And that slowly transformed into kind of what it is now. Based on that and based on the design work that I've been doing, at the job that I had, I was able to have a pretty good portfolio to send around, which led to, you know, independent film posters, short film posters, art galleries, and a number of home video releases. And in the past year, I've been fortunate enough to do, you know, Blu-ray and DVD cover artwork for Terror Train with Jamie Lee Curtis in the UK, or the Blu-ray collection of Maya Darren's films uh, by Kino here in the US. And we just did the um, short films of Martin Scorsese for the Criterion collection here. Isn't this crazy? A dream come true moment. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like here, you know, when you're talking about your college origins and you're talking about how you got into experimental film and Maya Darren's one of the people who inspired you and who who pushed you towards making experimental films. And now you get to create artwork for a release of her work that is going to be seen by Maya Darren fans around the world. And I know that as you, as a cinephile, I mean, Martin Scorsese is one of the, the great hollowed names of, of, uh, of modern cinema. And you just created work to represent him, knowing that Martin Scorsese has seen your artwork. That's gotta be amazing. I, yes, it is. And it's humbling as hell to think that, you know, the artists and art directors and talent that inspired me through all the people that work at and with the Criterion Collection over the past, you know, 30 years now 
now that I can have something in their ranks that I that I've, I've contributed to that is outrageously humbling. And I'm also happy that I was finally able to give Martin Scorsese's mom's pasta recipe to everyone. <laughs> it's in the release. You'll be able to get it. Through through that trajectory, from 365 posters over the course of a year to commissioning indie uh, poster art and uh, in film poster art and gallery shows and Blu-ray artwork, uh, you really have kind of gathered a lot of attention and made a name for yourself in, in the world of, of film art. And through that, you created your own design label, Sister Hyde. And let's let's talk about the name Sister Hyde, because I know the origins of this name, because I'm an old school Hammer Horror fan. But for the unassuming folks out there who don't know who Sister Hyde is, would you explain to them where you got the name for your company? Yes. As a trans woman, I felt it rather important to, in a way, telegraph that as a design brand, because it's such a part of my own identity, that I am in no way, shape, or form putting that back in the closet when I pick up my pen. And I am, as you also well know, a very, very big Hammer fan. And the first Hammer horror film I ever saw, coincidentally, was Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde, which is a 1974, I believe? Jekyll Hyde gender swapper from Roy Ward Baker. And it is absolutely fantastic. It's exactly what it sounds like. Dr. Jekyll turns into a female version of Mr. Hyde uh, and then becomes Jack the Ripper in the female form and kills people to steal their estrogen glands so that she can stay a woman. And it is... One of the greatest movies ever made. Um, and when I was... Uh, this also must have been, you know, middle school age. The beginning transformation scene from the movie, about 20 minutes into the film, when Dr. Jekyll first takes his elixir and transforms into Sister Hyde. Um, I saw that for the very first time on YouTube when I when, like, YouTube was first a thing, and I was quite young, and I watched that again and again and again and again. It's such a euphoric moment. It has as much suspense and terror and mystery as you would hope in a Jekyll Hyde scene, but the end result has so much euphoria in the character's face, and her acting is so so beautifully done uh, and so tender in that movie. And as a young kid who was questioning their gender uh, quite heavily at the time, that was an incredibly important movie and scene. And so to be able to pay homage to that and kind of use the horror and queer roots of that to kind of front face and identify myself has been very, very, very fortunate. Because if you know the brand, then if you know the if you know the film, then you'll be able to be like, oh, okay. So let me guess, she's probably queer, and she probably does a lot of horror stuff, and you would be correct. Well, and I love your love of this movie because one, I mean, as I said, I'm also a big Hammer enthusiast, but also in the annals of queer horror, this kind of falls in the category of a movie that, for many, 
has some elements that are questionable by today's lens. Now, at the beginning of this conversation, we talked about how horror is often uh, a bastion for for queer people to uh, see themselves uh, through a fantastical lens or use the otherness to peel away layers of sexuality. But, and I'm going to just put the question to you point blank, because you and I have talked about it many, many times off the mic, has horror done right by the trans identity? Because I don't know that it has yet. The the really simple answer is no. <laughs> However, it's so much more complex than that. Have we gotten the Love, Simon of trans horror films? No, we have not. However, we do have Hari Neff and Assassination Nation. We have Jamie Clayton and Neon Demon. We have the Wild Boys, uh, which, while it doesn't have any trans performers in the film, is an incredibly trans film. And for as experimental as it is, it is also an incredibly horrific film. But at the same time, the history of trans characters in horror is troublesome and not as squeaky clean as some other depictions. However, we still grapple onto it because it's all that we have. We have Norman Bates who, yes, isn't a trans character, but it is also a trans character. We have Bobby in Dress to Kill, which is not a good depiction of a trans character, but is a trans character. And I'm interested in this because we often talk about sort of the reclaiming of movies that are air quotes problematic. And it's a discussion that you and I have had a few times, including on uh, some of the, the Dead for Phil specials when we've talked about Almodovar, how even though he's a great progressive queer artist, he still sometimes, uh, by and large, does not handle trans issues right. And it, it does kind of harken back in a different way to certain gay movies in the pantheon of genre like Cruising or Basic Instinct that the community initially railed against that have come back around to embracing them uh, but I do think that it's a little different because, as you said, in terms of trans identity issues, you're, you're kind of holding on to these things because there hasn't been much else. So is, is the trans community enjoying sleepaway camp because you're embracing the camp value or is it because there's not other options? And is that even a fair question to ask? I feel like it's a little bit of both. I love Angela because Angela's a great character, no matter how you slice it. But Angela's also a very important trans character. And even if the ending of that movie is used the way the ending of that movie is, it's still an important movie. And as problematic as the quote-unquote man-in-a-dress killer is, it's still in some way, shape, and form representation and, you know, there are trans characters in horror movies. It's not like they wrote us out. They just wrote us in as the villains. And you know what? A person like me, I like to... Who wanted to be Dracula. I kind of like to be the villain sometimes. Not all the time. I would kind of like if there was positive trans representation that didn't lead to a person being transgender as an excuse to murder them. Or positive trans representation that would help you know, maybe lower the death rates of trans women of color, that would be amazing. And we kind of need that really, really badly. However, 
I do think that there is a lot to be found in these more problematic trans characters and depictions of trans characters than than we think. Even in Al Motivar's The Skin I Live In, yeah, if you if you just want to take a straight look at the plot of that movie, that's that's not great. That's it's a little not okay. However, it is still nonetheless a film about gender as horror and the human body as horror, and it can be viewed as a more trans-masculine storyline, as a person who identifies as being a masculine individual who is then experiencing body dysphoria and gender dysphoria through the female form, which, you know, is an incredibly important lens that's not shown a lot. Um, and there's also films that don't get discussed as trans canon, which aren't as overt as, say, Silence of the Lambs or Dress to Kill, uh, that nonetheless still have, if you read through a trans lens, incredibly positive trans representation. It's solely about the kinds of characters that we see and that we latch onto and that we let ourselves experience. So I personally read uh, Val Luton's Cat People and the follow-up Curse of the Cat People as being incredibly trans films. They're absolutely, were not made to be trans films. I don't think Jacques Tourneur and Val Luton had such a concept in mind <laughs> in any way, shape, or form. However, going back as a contemporary audience or a contemporary trans audience looking at these, you can see similarities and you can see yourself in these characters in a way that's inspiring and liberating in a way that we kind of don't get in cinema. I mean, in Cat People, Irena is a woman who is played up to be the other out of all the other women in New York City. She's from a vague Eastern European country, which does not exist, and she's very quickly seduced by a very straightforward cishet man, but she becomes very increasingly terrified of the prospect of sex because engaging in a sexual act with someone would reveal something about herself that she has kept inside and which can lead to violence. And she finds herself being kind of clocked and related to by a woman she's never met before on her honeymoon, and she ultimately becomes increasingly jealous of an overtly cishet woman who has an interest in her husband, and this leads to the violence of the film, this leads to her character being put into analysis and therapy, being dubbed deranged and mentally ill in a way that has happened to transgender individuals for decades, centuries now. And Curse of the Cat People is about that cis-het husband and that cis-woman that he ended up marrying after the death of Irena in the first film, raising a daughter who is a little on the androgynous side, incredibly socially awkward, has very little friends and does not know how to communicate with other people. She finds a photograph of Irena in a drawer, which her parents immediately take away from her and begins to experience seeing Irena as an imaginary friend, as a kind of a ghostly figure in the backyard. And the film is much, much more of a kids coming of age movie set around Christmas than it is any kind of horror movie, but it's absolutely also a positive story of trans representation, of it, it, 
this little child who has a hard time living in their own skin and interacting with other people who, by the end of the movie, finds acceptance and finds uh, a way to interact with people and find how to define herself in a way to experience her life with other people through discovering a photograph of a woman, which, if you read into that reading of the first film, is is a depiction of the other, is a depiction of strangeness, queerness, or transness, and helps her on her way to discovering herself. I mean, it, you could you could make the same thing as a, about a movie about a small child discovering a photograph of Candy Darling and deciding to come out. Like I would love to see that. I, as would I. I love Candy Darling. I, I find those movies incredibly both inspiring and uplifting, yet also anxiety-inducing because of how deeply they can relate to certain levels of the existence. I think it's great and I, I, that you have provided this reading because I think that um, so many people probably would not even think to look at the film through that lens, but it speaks to uh, our different life experiences and our, our different identity experiences that some things become so apparent when you're part of a community that everybody else can miss. It's funny, you know, all of these adventures in the world of queer horror, whenever I do uh, public speaking engagements, and I talk about just like the gayness of certain movies, there I'll have someone in the audience that will say, oh, I didn't see that at all because I, but it's because they weren't looking for it. But here's an example of a trans narrative existing in genre cinema before we even really had words for what a trans narrative was. And I, I really value these kind of uh, discussions because this, in a way, is what Dead for Filth is all about. And I also appreciate that you have such a great perspective um, on on the movies that are, are sometimes controversial. Would you say that from your perspective that it's important to embrace our problematic faves as long as it, in, uh, it, it pushes a conversation? I absolutely think so. I, you know... I watch movies like uh, Bob Clark's She-Man, A Story of Fixation, frequently because I find a lot in there. I, and I think a lot of other trans people do too. They find a lot of nuggets of interest or truth or to just kind of laugh at how terrible some of these are. But they find something in all of them and I think... From a trans audience, you know, good, bad, or otherwise, those movies belong to us still. And there's something to be celebrated about them. Even even if we don't want them to be seen in a certain lens, we still want to see them through our own lens. And they still work, no matter what. Even, yeah, Sons of the Lambs has its problems in terms of that. However, we we still do our best. And we still find ourselves in movies like... Rinse Dreams, Dr. Caligari, or Neon Evangelion, or Sleepaway Camp, or all of these different things that whether they have a trans character, or they don't, or they have a problematic trans character, we still find something in there that relates to us and speaks to us in a way that contemporary and mainstream cinema doesn't in an overt way. Well, and then let me ask you, at the beginning of, of this particular topic, you mentioned uh, 
movies like Assassination Nation or uh, Wild Boys. And some of the films you've just referenced, they're they're coded or they kind of fall under the the air quotes old way of thinking. What is some modern trans content that you've seen beyond a few of the ones you've mentioned that really uh, have rocked the needle for you or that you you would recommend to people who are looking for more of that content, if any? There's, we're finally really starting to get some more really strong trans content. Unfortunately, not enough trans horror as I would like. There is a new trans vampire movie called Bit that I'm dying to see for obvious reasons, but it has yet to come out and I really, really hope it does soon. However, there's amazing trans representation in television and film right now outside of the genre space. Um... The director of Assassination Nation has gone on to make the HBO show Euphoria, which many people have flocked to because it features one of the best depictions of a trans character on screen in a long time. And she's played by Hunter Schaefer, who is a trans performer, and it's such a true and not whitewashed depiction of a human being who happens to be trans. The narrative is not around her transition or her coming out. She just gets to live her life as a person, flawed and beautiful and everything that human beings actually are. And it's incredibly powerful and moving. Um, Her story is an amazing YouTube series that you can check out that's very, 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 very good, written, directed, and starring trans performers. And... The Wachowski sisters, uh, Sensei, it's fucking phenomenal. I don't care. It's so good. Again, Jamie Clayton's in that one too. And it, to allow, again, a trans person to exist within a genre space and a genre story as themselves, not as a coming out arc or a transition arc, and allow her to be a lesbian and allow her to be in a positive relationship and allow her to have a positive depiction of just a person and going through a life and then to also be able to be in a fantastical genre space on top of that is groundbreaking and again written directed and starring trans individuals goes a long way into telling some pretty accurate stories that we don't get to see often. I certainly hope that we can see more trans voices behind the screen and in front of it soon. And I really, really, really hope we can get more trans horror out there because we need it. All vampires are queer. So many more canons should be trans. I, I, you just gotta make it. You just gotta cast them. You just gotta hire them. I, I wanna see these movies. Give me these movies. Well, maybe because of your frequent readings of Dracula, you need to make the trans Dracula movie at least. Do us that favor, Drew. I'm dying to. Uh, Drew, honestly, I, I really am so grateful that we got to dig into this issue and talk about these things today because it's it's something that needs discussed more in the landscape of horror, and I'm, I'm glad that I got to talk about it with you because I've always valued your insight and your opinion on this. And... Uh, just thank you, truly. And uh, I'm, I, I'm so grateful for the work that you continue to do. And listeners, I have to say, you know, Drew has, has been there, as I said in the intro from the beginning. And I'm happy to say that 
I have been in uh, Drew's life since her beginnings in L.A. because we met the night she arrived here in town. Yes, we did. (laughs) At the Egyptian theater for the premiere of Troma's B.C. Butcher. That's right. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's so wild that that was your first night. And here we are. uh, How many years later? Four years later. It's been four years. Good God. <laughs> it, it truly has. And, you know, you you got behind me and, and, and uh, really helped make Dead for Filth happen uh, when it was in its infancy. And you and Dominic uh, both really uh, championed this. And uh, you were there at the beginning. And I'm so grateful to uh, finally get to sit down for a longer conversation beyond a special where we're talking about uh, trashy movies to get through the weekend. Um, so uh, thank you, thank you for for being a truly amazing artist and uh, for always, you know, being supportive and for all the work that you do and continue to do. Uh, I'm so grateful that uh, you were here today. Thank you so much for having me and thank you so much for helping and supporting my art as well over the years. It has meant truly the world to me and I'm so honored to finally... Uh, discuss some of these issues on Dead Filth in an episode that will be aired. Yes, well, and and perhaps more to come. Uh, Drew, thank you, thank you. Uh, Where can people find you? You can find me on Instagram and on Twitter at uh, Hyde Sister, and you can also find my website, which is sisterhydesign.com for commissions, emails, or if you just want to scroll through my pretty, pretty galleries of former work. Well, go do it. And, you know, if if you can, uh, keep supporting this amazing artist and keep your eyes peeled for more of Drew's amazing art out in the world. And as always, I'm Michael Verratti. This has been Dead for Filth. Yours always in glam and gore. Good night, good luck, and stay home. Dead for Filth, the Renegade Edition, is a June Gloom production in association with Sister Hyde. Dead for Filth is created and hosted by Michael Verratti and produced by Drew Phillips.